welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, January 28th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning. You guys, um, it's starting to feel a little bit like spring out there. A little... <laughs> uh, little warmer, a little bit of a rainy morning, but uh, I, I, I welcome that other than, uh, you know, the blizzard of last year's Broadway con that we had. <laughs> yeah. ah, the sooner the better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's jump right into the reviews here. Both of you got a chance to get up to the 92nd Street Y to see the Bobby Darren show starring Jonathan Groff, which uh, we talked about with Jonathan a few weeks back. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on the Bobby Darren show? Well, the thing is, most of us discovered Jonathan Groff uh, almost a dozen years ago when he uh, did the Atlantic uh, production of Spring Awakening. And then, of course, by the end of the year, he was on Broadway. And there, of course, he was playing an adolescent. Uh, so it's not uh, – <laughs> it's hard to uh, take that adolescent and get it out of your head because his performance was so dynamic there. But suddenly, here he is, and now he's obviously in his 30s, and he has turned it to be a sensational leading man. And boy, I have a feeling that if he wants to do Broadway, he can do musical after musical after musical. And I, I won't be surprised if he turns up in the um, official musical about uh, Bobby Darren, which is being ready now. And um, I was just overwhelmed. I didn't expect him to be so, let's say, mature and um, and commanding, but Boy, it was really quite wonderful. Does he look like Bobby Darren? Not quite. Uh, does he sound like Bobby Darren? Now and then. But the point is, he does channel the spirit, and he does have a way of making it uh, seem as if you're seeing Bobby Darren, and that's good enough. Now, he even had a chance to dominate the show more if indeed he didn't have a supporting cast who uh, the director decided, well, let's split up everything among people. Oh, maybe that was the writers. I don't know. But it was split up. So that sometimes Bobby Darren's songs were sung by people who weren't remotely Bobby Darren, including, including women. So it was hmm. quite an event um, to see this, and it was an imaginative way of handling it. And they did get into all the issues about Bobby Darren. I don't know how much uh, people know about the history, but the really strange thing was that he grew up with a sister who turned out not to be a sister, but his mother. It was just in those days, if you weren't a married uh, woman, uh, whoa, uh, and you had a kid, that was uh, tough stuff. So uh, he learned late in life that his sister was actually his mother and his mother was actually his grandmother. So that's a, a, a fascinating nugget. And um, so there was that. And of course, there was the marriage to Sandra D, which uh, was tumultuous and uh, his tr attempts to reinvent himself as he went on in life because uh, he felt that uh, his swing in style was uh, way behind. And he got politically active, certainly dealing with uh, the Robert Kennedy uh, campaign and all that. So he tried to be Bob Darren for a while and do songs like If I Were a Carpenter, which is quite different from Mac the Knife. And you know, it's quite a journey and it's quite a story. So, uh, But the real thing you came away with saying is, my God, what a great leading man Jonathan Groff is. All right. Michael, what did you think? I would describe this show as a very, very wonderful, pleasant surprise because I uh, – 
there's no greater fan of Jonathan Groff than myself. I have always thought he was great from the beginning. And I've seen almost everything he's done on stage, certainly. But I would never have thought of him for Bobby Darren music, uh, just simply because he has, I have not previously seen him perform those kinds of songs that I can remember. Uh, as uh, Jonathan was our guest on the podcast two weeks ago, I believe, and he gave a lot of background on this show and how the project came to be. Uh, seems that Ted Chapin, uh, who heads the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, is now uh, the new head of lyrics and lyricists at the 92nd Street Y, had seen uh, this show in Australia about Bobby Darren called Dream Lover, I believe. And he uh, was very intrigued of in, uh, to do as, uh, some kind of similar uh, show here in the city. And he asked Jonathan, he approached Jonathan Groff and asked him if, if he would be interested. Uh, initially, Jonathan uh, said he had almost no knowledge of Bobby Darren, but then he went, uh, as he told us, he went to YouTube and wherever and uh, uh, watched and listened to all of these clips, and he really became fascinated by him as a performer. So this is a, a case of someone, uh, I would say, stretching stylistically and having it be a tremendous success rather than an unfortunate failure. I, I, we've seen cases of both, I'm sure, many times, but it was absolutely spectacular in every way. The show, the the writing, uh, the arrangements. Uh, by the way, so we have. I mean, listen to this team. So Ted Chapin, producer; Alex Timbers, director; uh, two music directors listed: Andy Einhorn and Andrew Resnick. Um, then the the. Four other cast members are David Pitu, George Salazar, Elena Shadow, and Stephanie Stiles. Um, then we had a five-piece band, uh, musical staging by Chase Brock, projections Dan Scully, costume consultant William Ivy Long, lighting designer John Kelly, uh, and stage manager Lori Weskelblatt. So this was really uh, – obviously uh, involved a lot of tremendously talented people. And I, I think it was a smashing, smashing success. I've gone to several of the lyrics and lyricists programs over the years, and especially lately, I've been going to more of them, but it, it one absolutely had the sense that this, this program had drawn in an entirely new audience uh, in addition to the diehards that normally attend the concerts there. So it wasn't that the audience was replaced uh, by younger um uh, uh, audiences of a different demographic. It was it was uh, amplified by those having those people present also, and you could just sense the uh, the energy in the theater. I, I don't recall cheers and uh, you know really vociferic vociferous clapping and standing ovations uh, at the ends of previous concerts. Not not at this level. So uh, deservedly, Jonathan Groff has many, many fans. And I'm so glad that this worked out to be such an incredible success. And I do think that if logistics can be worked out, we hopefully will see it again someday, sometime, somewhere. Uh, Jonathan, as many of you know, is currently one of the two leading players on a TV show called Mindhunter, so, um, he's, which is apparently extremely successful also. So he's going to have to work around that uh, for any um, future run of this show. But well, you know, who, who knows what the future may bring, and let's hope we see it again somewhere. So uh, unfortunately, that was just uh, 
a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or just a Saturday, Sunday, in fact, uh, on, on a few and before. Monday. And Monday, that's what it was. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And uh, immediately it ended up in Mr. Riedel's column that there is a uh, future plans for it, uh, possible Broadway plans and things like that. So maybe we will see it again or maybe it'll be performed again somewhere else. But um, seemingly – Well, actually, I did see a reading of the uh, the show from Australia, which I thought was terrific beyond belief. Mm-hmm. It, it's written by Melvin Morrow and uh, David Mitchell. And uh, they've done a tremendous job. And Rick Fognio, who was in uh, Jersey Boys, played the part. And he was magnificent as well. So uh, I, I do think we're going to see a Bobby Darren show uh, happen because there is tremendous interest in his life and career. Uh, what I didn't mention is the fact that um, he was sick from day one, and a lot of people, including his doctors, didn't think he was going to make it past adolescence. So that makes um, the story much more dramatic as well, that he had to do it in the time he was given, that that was always over his hanging over his head, that at any minute he could die. And, of course, he died in his 30s. So um, it, it really that, – that determination to succeed because he had no idea if tomorrow was going to be the last day if not today, is, is significant. So uh, so it's a dramatic story, and I, I certainly wish Melvin Morrow and um, David Mitchell well. <clears throat> at, the, at the moment, uh, it's called uh, Darren to Swing, as in Daring to Swing, mm-hmm. um, with, a, with a, an apostrophe. So, uh, so I hope it comes sooner rather than later. I'm glad – just quickly, I'm glad you saw that, that workshop of the Australian version because you can answer this question that I have. Was it uh, a book musical with, the, with people playing the characters? Yes, indeed. Yeah, because this show at the, at the Y was not. It was uh, right. more of a club cabaret type show with uh, oh. direct address by the performers to the audience. And of course, they would sometimes say actual quotes, but they, they were not actually playing these separate characters. So that's a, a major difference. I don't know if that would be reworked for any future production. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right, let's uh, move forward. Peter, uh, Peter, you got over to 59 East 59 to see a, a show called Balls. Mm-hmm. So tell us about this. Well, uh, this has to do with the very famous match between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King back in the 70s. And I remember seeing it on TV. And uh, Bobby Riggs was 55 years old. Billie Jean King was substantially younger. But he felt because he was a man, he was going to beat her silly. It didn't turn out that way at all. In fact, she beat him in three straight sets. I do remember vividly that after it was over, he jumped over the net to show that he still had something in him. And I was hoping, by the way, that Donald Corrin would do that as well as the match ended which indeed he did not let me down. He certainly did, and that was really quite wonderful that he did. I will say that for the first 10 minutes, I thought I was in a theatrical hell. I just couldn't believe how um, awful it seemed to be. First off, you have a scoreboard up there, and it indicates that 
they could play as many as five sets. And <laughs> things on that scoreboard were very slow in coming, believe me when I tell you, uh, because they actually seem to be playing a game of tennis. Now, I have to give tremendous credit to the guy in the booth, or uh, the woman in the booth, who uh, actually has to make the sound of the ball hitting the racket, and more to the point, bouncing the ball on the court, you know, as they do before they um, serve. So I, I was flabbergasted at how perfectly, perfectly coordinated the sounds were with what these um, two people were doing <clears throat> as they were playing. And believe me, there is a lot of playing in this show, a tremendous amount. You actually uh, see virtually the entire match. And that was the thing that really was bothering me at the beginning. I thought, oh, my God. God, um, are we actually going to have to watch this whole match uh, back and forth, back and forth? And, you know, it takes a while before a point is scored. So, um, whoa. But, but, but then I suddenly saw what they were doing, um, that um, it wasn't a case of just the match that we were uh, being, shall we say, treated to, if you will. Not at all. What happened here that the play's uh, co-authors, Brianna Lavery, who we had frozen years ago, not the frozen we have now, and Kevin Armento, had much more on their mind than just a tennis match. And they were pointing out the fact that during this period of time, things were really changing, especially for women. And um, so there are lots of matters about lesbianism, about abortion about women's rights and you really became fascinated to see how much was happening at that period of time and it was all through the filter of a, of a tennis game so what turned out to be uh, an excruciating experience at the beginning that made me start thinking hmm maybe I should pass time by thinking how many Tony winners I've met alphabetically speaking okay Annie Dorothy Loudon Barnum, Jim Dale, Can Can, Gwen Burden. Uh, oh. Suddenly, um, it it grabbed my attention, and um, I was riveted the rest of the way because I thought it was a very very smart metaphor to use. So, uh, Ellen Tamaki is the one who plays uh, Billie Jean King, and both of them uh, <laughs> bear a resemblance to the real people, which is really quite nice. But in case you think it's a two character play, it certainly is not. Uh, because there are other people who show up, including Chris Ebert, including Jimmy Connors. People, uh, There's a lot of stuff about uh, marriage between um, and how difficult it is. We see fans in the stands uh, who have their own opinions. There's uh, a couple where, of course, she's for Billy and he's for not uh, for, Bill, <laughs> for Billy. He's for Bobby. So uh, I, I, I don't get discouraged if you go, if you think, oh, oh, oh. It's going to be 85 minutes of this thing going back and forth and back and forth and um, fault, you know, that no, no, it's your fault if indeed you don't uh, stay with it because um, the rewards will come. You know, this, I guess, was the second play about tennis that we've seen on a New York stage. Yeah, yeah. Very brief time because no. the roundabout did the last sure. match not right. not very long ago, yeah. and then we have uh, another show I haven't seen, but the Wolves up at Lincoln Center now isn't that about girls' soccer? Yeah. So uh, it, it seems we have a trend. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's a cyclical trend. I mean, we come back and forth. Uh, we had all those sports plays. Uh, sure, sure. That had uh, over at Circle. 
Well, uh, as a New Englander, I can say the Patriots certainly have high drama um, in, in what they do. I was so lucky. I was flying back from uh, California, and uh, as soon as the plane started, my little TV monitor showed me uh, the game, and literally as we were landing, uh, that's when the game ended. So I really uh, had a good time um, watching the Patriots play, uh, and they certainly, as I say, provide drama. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, some comeback, and we'll see what happens next week in the Super Bowl. Next week, right. All right, Michael, you got uh, a chance to see Cruel Intentions. So tell us about Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical experience, playing at Le Poisson Rouge, uh, formerly the Village Gate, which was a very famous venue back in its day. And uh, this is, or it gets a little complicated, the the, uh, the genesis of this. The original source material was Les Liaisons Dangereuses, a 1782 epistolary novel by Pierre Chaudelot de la Clos, which uh, many of our listeners may know in one of, uh, well, through uh, several forms. Uh, There is a play by Christopher Hampton named Les Liaisons Dangereuses, which has already been seen on Broadway three times, the original and the two revivals. Uh, And then in the late 80s, actually around the same time um, as, I guess, the first Les Liaisons Dangereuses, we had uh, two films come out almost, it seemed, simultaneously. One was called Dangerous Liaisons uh, with Glenn Close and John Malkovich, and another was called Valmont with Colin Firth and Annette Bening. And all of these are uh, pretty much tell the same story set in the, uh, in the late 18th century of sexual intrigue uh, among the, the uh, up classes in, uh, in Europe. And that uh, it has been very popular in all of those formats. And then uh, so much so that in 1999, we got a movie called Cruel Intentions, which uh, took the same basic story and even some of the character names and updated the action to the present day in America. And uh, I believe it's supposed to be people of prep school age. And the leads in that were played by Ryan Phillippe, Sarah Michelle Geller, and Reese Witherspoon. So this um, is a, 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 a one, one of the more recent jukebox musicals, I would say. Initially, I was not clear as to whether or not there was a new score, but there is not. It's chock full of songs from, I guess, the, uh, the late 90s and the 2000s. Songs by Boys to Men, uh, Christina Aguilera, R.E.M., Sync, Britney Spears, etc., etc. And uh, as in more or less in Mamma Mia, the songs are shoved in to various points in the narrative where they sort of fit the, the action uh, or the characters to some degree, but not really because they weren't written for this property. And there is a lot of, um, I think, uh, intentional humor there. Uh, someone will start singing a, a pop, a famous pop song at a really fraught moment, and you can hear the audience kind of giggle. And it's all it's all in perfect fun. Uh, 
and very enjoyable on that level. I think towards the end, it 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 uh, perhaps starts to seem like it's going on a little too long because that's when the the narrative gets more serious. And I don't think this kind of uh, show can really sustain that that weight of drama. But uh, it, but that doesn't last too long. Uh, so fortunately, it's not a huge issue. I, I think this will be a lot of fun uh, for. Well, for several people, for people who are fans of the movie, uh, for people who are fans of the those songwriters and the songs that I mentioned. Um, and also, it's it's very well done staging wise. I, I want to mention some of the uh, some of the cast. Constantine uh, Rusuli plays the role now called Sebastian Valmont. Valmont. Lauren Zacharin is Catherine Mertoy. And I actually saw an understudy in the uh, one of the other principal roles of Annette Hargrove, and her name was Stephanie Brown. And she was really fantastic. You would never have thought that she wasn't playing the role every night. Um, there's no set, uh, almost literally no set. The, the band is on stage at La Passe Rouge, but there is a lot of staging. It's fully staged, I would say, in terms of blocking and choreography, choreography by Jennifer Weber and directed by Lindsay Rosen. So I, I think if you, yeah, if any of that stuff appeals to you, the, the original story, uh, the movie, if you've only seen, uh, Les Liaisons Dangereuses on stage, uh, and would like to see, uh, this mo- more modern take on it, I think you might get a lot out of it also. And it's, fun to be <laughs> at the village gate which is as i said a kind of historic venue well the one thing that i didn't like about the show and um i did like most of it mm. is the fact that there is an adult um a parent involved here mm. and the music and the music for the parent was in the same style as the music for the kids and i'm going to say to people out there who are writing musicals and uh, rock musicals specifically if indeed you write a musical that um, has young people in it singing rock fine that's their vocabulary i understand but take a leaf out of mark shaman and scott whitman's book because do you notice in hairspray yes all the songs sound like the 60s except one and that's of course your timeless to me. And the reason is because these people, uh, the parents of uh, Tracy, are of a different generation. Therefore, they should have different music. So the mother's music should not sound like everybody else's music, as it does in Cruel Intentions. So uh, be fair to your characters. Make sure their music is in the right time period. It really helps tremendously, because (laughs) I don't think Hairspray suffered for having a song that sounded as if it were written in the 40s. Certainly, the run brought Broadway didn't hurt by it. And I've often wondered, I've never asked this of people, but I really should. Young people, do you like the song, You're Timeless to Me? If you like Hairspray, do you like that song too? Uh, is it a liability to you because it doesn't sound like the rest of the score? I've got to start asking people that question. Well, you know, another example of that might be Hamilton, in that King George's songs mm. are, are a throwback to a, a, a much older form of rock yeah. and roll. Yes, than- it is. Yeah, so that's another that's another great example where that really helps in the character writing and helps the person playing the role tremendously. All right, so uh, that is playing through March sixteenth, uh, so you can check that out if you'd like. Uh, Peter, next up, you got over to Playwrights Horizons to see Miles from Mary. Uh, wanted to tell us about that. 
Well, this is a play that deals with teachers in the teacher's room, and they are planning an event uh, to raise money for Mary Crane, who died in an accident nine years ago. And she was a terrific student athlete, and they thought it would be a nice idea to start a scholarship for uh, one boy, one girl. Um, And if things really go well, the kids can get as much as $500. So we're not talking high finance here. And one of the points that um, the playwright wants to make is that these people are not captains of industries. And uh, I will say that a lot of teachers are going to take umbrage at this play because, indeed, it does make them look like uh, babies, uh, that they uh, argue a great deal, and um, they're not used to having the type of responsibility in the, here in the teacher's room that they have in the classroom because when you're a teacher in the classroom, you have all the power. And um, here you are, now you have to deal with adults and you're supposed to share the power. It reminded me a good deal of God of Carnage in that everybody starts off being very polite. In fact, I think this play might say to set a record for using the word okay as much as it does because everybody's saying okay. Okay, yeah, but you know the storm clouds are on the horizon and it's going to happen, that there are going to be disagreements. And it really, uh, one character gets tremendously petulant um, about what's going on and uh, his displaced hostility really comes out as the play progresses. What I do like about the play is the fact that um, the, the characterizations are not what you think they're going to be. For example, there's a guy who looks like a, the quintessential milk toast, you know, bald, wimpy, thin, you know, that type of thing. And you really get the impression he's never even received a, a good night kiss from anyone. Well, as it turns out, he's married to another teacher and she's quite attractive and quite a clothes horse. Uh, you'll notice that in um, every scene, she's wearing something else that's uh, quite dynamic. So she really dresses for the job. Um, there's the butch uh, coach who you really think is going to be stupid. No, good for the playwright. Um, one of the smartest one in the group. So that was really quite good too. So the, that makes the play far more compelling than it might have been if indeed that didn't happen. I will say, though, you know, this is a play that doesn't hit the bullseye, but it's only one circle away from it. Um, you want it to be funnier than it is. The audience laughed on occasion, um, maybe more than on occasion, but not nonstop laughter. And that's what you really want this play to be. So it's not 100 percent satisfying. And I wonder if this is the reason why. Okay, here we go. Um, It's written by the Mad Ones. I should have said playwrights because here's the the way it's described in the playbill. Ready? Created by the Mad Ones. That's a theatrical collective. And underneath that, it says written by Mark Bovino, Joe Kernute, Michael Dalto, Lila Nujbarger, um, Bauer, sorry, Stephanie Wright Thompson wait, we're not through. Underneath that is in collaboration with Sarah Lunny and the creative ensemble of Amy Statz and Stacey Ann. Uh, All, by the way, are in the play except for Lila because she directed it. Now, (laughs) the irony here is that we're dealing with a play about how hard it is to get anything done by committee. (laughs) And here's a play written by committee. 
And one has to wonder what went on when the mad ones were putting this show together. Obviously, somebody said, let's keep that line. No, 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 we got to drop that. That's not funny. We, uh, no, that's not funny. Yes, it is funny. You know, I have a feeling that if we had a documentary about the writing session of Miles for Mary, it might be substantially funnier than Miles for Mary turned out to be. <laughs> so um, what they're doing essentially in showing the teachers is essentially showing themselves in a strange way. So um, I, I think a, a single playwright uh, might have done the job a bit better, having more control over what was going on because compromises had to be made, uh, I'm sure, in that room when they were writing it. Still, um, this is far more entertaining than not. It's a very good idea for a show. And um, uh, it's certainly something that um, aims high and just misses. But still, uh, how many shows do hit the bullseye? So we'll give credit where it's due and enjoy Miles for Mary for what it achieves rather than worry about what it doesn't. Okay, so uh, we do think of theater as a collaborative art, but sometimes too many cooks in the kitchen might apply. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I really, uh, I do think the broth might have been a little spoiled by too many cooks. And uh, I'm I'm reminded of what Carol Channing always says about, by the way, she just had a birthday, 97. uh, She's still with us. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, Carol Channing used to say about uh, Gawa Champion, you need a benevolent despot. And uh, that involves the director. And of course, Lila did all the direction, but still she was in on the writing as well. And how many lines did she lose that she thought were terrific? I mean, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But uh, but still, this this is a worthwhile uh, play and it's going over. Um, It it has been extended. And by the way, while we're at it, Cruel Extensions has been extended, too. So uh, obviously audiences are responding to both shows. All right, uh, Michael, you got it to the Attic Theater Company's production of Jericho, which is based on Lilium, which is the basis for Carousel, tying it all back to Broadway here. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm talking about a lot of shows based on source material that itself was based on source material, <laughs> where uh, it, it's so interesting to follow the chain. Uh, but this play is by Michael Weller, who uh, I've always, he's always been one of my favorite playwrights. Um, Ever since back in the day, uh, he uh, through his plays Moon Children and Loose Ends and his screenplay for the film of Hair, which um, as anyone who knows Hair, the movie and the show, it's the script is completely different and so much better. <laughs> yes, I, I know you've said that on many occasions and I completely agree. Um, so here he uh, apparently is fascinated by the play Lilium by I, I probably won't say his first name correctly, uh, Ferenc Molnar. Uh, and this is the original basis of of course, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Lilium was first produced in 1909 and is set in Budapest, Hungary. Carousel was originally produced in 1945 uh, and actually um, sets the action back um, several years uh, in Maine in 1873. And now we have Michael Weller's Jericho uh, with the setting Coney Island uh, just like uh, Love Never Dies, <laughs> uh, Coney Island uh, during the Depression. So I think that when the action starts, we're told that it's 1932. Um, the character names, uh, th- this is the uh, genesis here. Lilium in the original is, of course, Billy Bigelow in the musical. And he is called called Jericho in 
the Weller play. Uh, it's a nickname. Uh, his actual name is uh, mentioned a couple of times, uh, some sort of Euro- Eastern European name that I didn't uh, catch uh, to write it down. But uh, And that, I think, was not explained, unless I missed it, why he would be called Jericho. Uh, it seems an odd nickname. But anyway, that is what he's called. Uh, the other characters, Julie, uh, has been Julie in, in all versions of this property that I know. She's Julie and Lilium in Carousel and in Jericho. Um, then we have uh, Julie's friend Marie in the original, Carrie Pipperidge in Carousel, and Mary in The Weller. Uh, the carnival owner is... Uh, uh, carousel owner is Mrs. Muscat in the original, Mrs. Mullen in Carousel, and Mrs. Mosca in the Weller, and then finally the villain of the piece, um, whom we know as Jigger, Jigger, Jigger Cragen in Carousel. He's called Fixer in the original Lilium, and here he's called Tink. And I don't know Lilium all that well, but I did see a production of it within the past five years off Broadway, so that that refreshed my memory of it. And then I also look through the script again at that time. I would say that for the most part, Weller used quite closely to the original with with some changes. Some of them I thought were not well advised. There's uh, one actor who sort of serves as a narrator or a stage manager, uh, framing device kind of person uh, at the beginning and end of the play and maybe at one other one or two other points in between and I thought that was that really didn't add anything and it just took away from the effect um, there were sections where uh, I didn't think the adaptation was successful but there were many places where it really was very powerful and hit you in a different way the death scene of Jericho or Lilium was one of the most powerful stagings of that that I've ever seen. I think it was partly the intimacy of the theater. Um, also, the, uh, the the acting was was quite good from Jericho, played by Vasily Flutur, and Julie, played by Hannah Sloat. Um, so I, I'm going to remember that moment quite a while. And the ending of the play, the Weller play, was interesting because um, it, 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 in the in the three versions of this story that I know, it, you're, uh, there's different endings as to what Billy's fate or Lilium's fate ultimately is after he dies and he uh, he goes to purgatory and then he's given the chance to go back to Earth to make things right and get into heaven. Uh, I think the uh, the strong implication in Lilium is that he does not make things right and he goes to hell. Uh, Carousel is much more optimistic. You feel like he has expiated his guilt and it has helped his daughter to to grow and has told finally told his wife that he loved her and he's going to heaven. Um, and in Jericho, I would say it's it's somewhat ambiguous, but more towards the the hopeful end. So I um, would definitely advise checking out this play if you can uh, to see how a major writer Michael Weller tackles a piece like this in the present day. And of course, uh, you'll want to pay a special note to how he deals with the parts of the story that have become dicier and dicier over the years, such as. Um, why Julie 
continues to live with a man who apparently is sometimes physically abusive to her. And also the famous line where uh, their daughter uh, asks, is it possible for someone to hit you and and for it not to hurt at all. That's not exactly how it's phrased here. And the answer that Julie gives is, is very different from what we hear in Carousel. So I think you'll want to make note of those two moments if you get to see Jericho down at the Wild Project Theater in this production by the Attic Theater Company. All right, great. XP8, I've learned a new word today. Uh, so, <laughs> but- I, had to, I had to look it up. I was like, oh, that's perfect to- Excellent use of that word. Um, Peter needs to run down to Broadway Con for his West Side Story uh, panel. So, Peter, right before you run, just give us uh, a couple of minutes on your trip to California. You were uh, uh, a production of your new play. So tell us about that. Well, it's only a 10-minute play, uh, but it was done in San Juan Capistrano. But here's the real story. Okay. So I get on the plane at Kennedy. And I don't know about you, but um, I always take the first available overhead compartment for my carry-on luggage um, because you can always get back there and everything's full. And what are you going to do with your bag? You got to put it under your seat. And sometimes they don't want it there. So, okay, fine. So this was I, a lot of planes I've been flying lately have been to small destinations and they haven't had a first-class section. So I got on the plane. I didn't even think about that. And I put my bag up and it's then I see it's bin three. And I thought, oh, this is first class. Um, And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can get away with this. Here's my luggage tag sticking out. And, um, you know, they they do go around in first class and say, "Uh, uh, Mr. Portantier, uh, 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 are you Mr. Marino? That type of thing. And um, so I thought, oh, I probably won't get away with this. But (laughs) there were people behind me waiting to get on. I didn't even want to turn the bag around so that my tag wouldn't be uh, shown. So I thought, all right, you know, let me let me try to get away with this. So I go back to 26C, my humble seat, and suddenly I hear Peter Felicia come to the front. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm busted. All right. So I go up there and I said, yeah, I'm Peter. And um, Peter said, this woman would like to speak to you. And she said, hi, I just saw your luggage tag. And, um, you know, so you're Peter Felicia. Wow. You know, you gave me this wonderful review at Rags. And on the podcast, you said I was the best actress of the year. So thank you so much. You know, that was really so nice of you. So uh, this is Samantha Mazzell. And um, let me also point out that she was going to Los Angeles to uh, film a commercial. And the thing she told me, she says, you know, um, it is a rule. I don't know if she said it was equity or SAG or whatever it was. But it is a rule that when you are flown out from New York to Los Angeles, Angeles to do a commercial, you get to fly either first class or business class. So those of you who are interested in being in uh, the acting field, don't neglect commercials. You'll get some <laughs> very nice trips out there. So so uh, really quite good. Meanwhile, at the Camino Real Playhouse in San Juan Capistrano, yes, they did seven 10-minute uh, plays, and they did terrific work, once again proving that so many talented, talented people are in community theater. And more to the point, this group really knew how to cast. I didn't see one person in all seven of the plays that was remotely miscast. They really knew who they needed and who they had to have. So uh, I, I really was so impressed. And it was really worth the 
two hour and 50 minute drive from Los Angeles for a 54 mile uh, <laughs> stint. My, you know, I'm not the first and won't be the last person to talk about LA traffic, but still, it was pretty maddening. I ran out of CDs that I bought, uh, brought with me some. <laughs> so anyway, but it was it was quite a good trip and uh, I was glad I did it. But uh, uh, Samantha Mazel really is a, a, a very fetching and uh, beautiful woman and uh, as i say she was terrific in rags so i look forward to seeing her in other things and who knows maybe i'll see her in the commercial on tv i hope uh, that works out too so after uh you guys were finished with your pleasantry she said take your damn blag and get back and coach <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very nice of her to deign to come back to me and uh, talk more and tell me about her adventures at Michigan with Mark Badama and uh, that wonderful teacher out there. But um, <laughs> thank God I gave her a good review. She might have thrown my luggage on the tarmac if I said she stunk. So uh, Exactly. It works both yeah. ways. <laughs> it sure does. So anyway. All right, Peter. Um, why don't you give us the answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question was, what Tony-winning playwright designed the logo for a musical that got a Tony for one of its leading performers? And the answer is Herb Gardner, who won a Tony for his play Conversations with My Father. Now, before he was a playwright, he was actually a cartoonist, and he had a series of cartoons called The Nebishes about a family that was not unlike The Simpsons. And uh, I don't know how he got the job, but uh, Harold Prince or somebody uh, hired him to do the logo for Flora the Red Menace, which... uh, gave Liza Minnelli her first Tony. So that's the answer to the question. Nobody got it. So as a result, I think maybe Michael should give a trivia question this week. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Michael, uh, what do you got for us? Well, I don't know how hard or, uh, or easy this is, but I think it's fun. One of the longest running plays in Broadway history has a character with the same name as a character in another Broadway play that had a far shorter run. Mm. Uh, these, this second show, the one with the shorter run, was eventually made into a musical, adapted as a musical that had a long run, but that character's name was changed. Ah. So please name the, uh, the character, the two character names, and the, the three shows. Okay. If you know the answer to this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.